So we're going to carry on this morning looking at the Apostles' Creed. And in particular this morning, we're going to look at God, the creator of heaven and earth. And I want us to start reading right at the beginning of our Bibles. Genesis chapter 1 is the obvious place to start. And um, I don't have a copy of the Church Bible at home, so I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said... Let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind." And it was so, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And so God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs for seasons, and for days and years And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And so it was. And God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. To rule over the day and over the night. And to separate the light. And God said... Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swam according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. I want to stop here just a little bit. I want us to consider the greatness of our God. We've sung a number of songs this morning which speak of God's greatness, his glory. How often do we stop and think he really is a great God? He is the creator God. I'll ask Jake if you put up the first picture this morning. I just want to put this into some kind of context. 
So for any alien visiting our planet, that's a kind of you-are-here spot. That's where our solar system sits, in our galaxy, the Milky Way. Now I'll ask Jake to put up the next picture. Just to put this all into context... We're tiny. Our planet is insignificant, really. We're only 13,000 kilometers in diameter within our solar system. And our solar system is 287.5 billion kilometers across. And our solar system, the Milky Way, is 100,000 light years across. Each light year is roughly 9.5 million kilometers which is 5.9 trillion miles. That's pretty impressive. You would agree? But then, science tells us that there are up to 400 billion other galaxies apart from our Milky Way out there. And that's just what we can see now through things like the Hubble telescope. And for all those who love speed, our galaxy all one 5.9 trillion miles across of it, is moving at an estimated 600 kilometers per second. So for anyone who's got a BMW who likes going at 70, 80, 90, 100 miles an hour, actually that's really slow compared to what we're already doing. So I hope you agree, that's really amazing. Yes? Would you like to see something even more amazing? Well, just turn and look at your neighbour. Just look at them. Look at them now. Yeah? That's the pinnacle of God's creation. He knows all those stars we've talked about by name. The millions that he cast out there. And that was only day four. Another two days to go till he created us. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And this was on the sixth day. And on the next day, God took his rest. I hope this has set you wondering a little bit about God, about his awesomeness. He created the heavens. We've looked at those numbers that to most of us don't really mean anything, do they? But if you think that you are the pinnacle of his creation, that the God, the creator of heaven and earth, regards me as the best that he can do. That's truly amazing. But why? Why does he think that? In Alistair McGrath's book, the landscape of faith, he reminds us that creation is no mere accident. Some of you might know I'm a biologist. I've been a biologist for a long time, 45 years. 
And Alison McGrath, like me as a biologist, and he reminds us, creation is not an accident, okay? There wasn't a big bang from nothing, and then a random series of chemicals coming together in a puddle, which eventually led to you. If you've got a few hours to spare, I'd love to take you through why I disagree with that intensely. Creation came into being through the word of God, by the breath of his mouth. And there are three parts in the language of creation. Origination, intentionality, and signification. The world and the galaxies, as Genesis tells us, did not always exist. They did not come in by accident. They were created by a will. Origination. Secondly, it was intentional. It was meant to happen. It wasn't God sneezed and suddenly there was the galaxy. He meant to create it. And thirdly, creation is a signpost to its creator. It points to something beyond itself, to its ultimate source and origin. The universe bears the imprint of God, revealing something of his grandeur and of his divine splendor and wisdom. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Perhaps on a smaller scale, you might remember the first time you saw a magnificent vista, something like Yosemite National Park or something in the Lake District that completely blew you away, took away your breath. I have friends who took me to Yosemite Park, and as we came and approached the park up the mountain pass, they pulled into a side road and said, right, when you go around the corner, no bad language. I, yeah, okay. You go around the corner and there's Yosemite value, and things do come out of your mouth because you just think, wow, you've seen the photographs, but when you see the thing in real life, the size, the grandeur, and the scale, and magnify that a million times, that is our God. We have an awesome creator God. When we sing of his power and might and majesty, we can start, I hope, to think that is true. We don't just sit there and think, oh, I've come here on Sunday, I'm going to sing a few songs. Yeah, God's the creator God. God is all-powerful. Do you believe what you sing? It's the same when we recite the creed. Do you believe that in your heart? Does your soul grab you and say, he made me, he created me? King Solomon, when he wrote Proverbs, started by saying, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fear in this context is we are awestruck, dumbstruck at the magnificence of that God, that powerful God. There's a tinge of fear in there too. Why would a God who can create everything we see love me? Why would he do that? Why does he want us to be with him? We come to us and we say to ourselves, really, am I and you the pinnacle of God's creation? I don't know about you, but when I get up first thing in the morning and look into the bathroom mirror, I don't generally think, gosh, look at this, pinnacle of God's creation. I'm usually more interested in what's moved a bit further south. Maybe for you youngsters, you don't get there yet, but for some of us older folk, things have a habit of moving further south. 
that we are a magnificent creation. The psalmist, Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16, points this out far more eloquently than I can. He says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. As I said, I've been a biologist for some 45 years. I'm old enough to know that when I was first training as a biologist, we knew what DNA did, but we had no idea what it looked like, what its structure was. Now we know pretty much everything there is to know about DNA. We know about the complexity of our bodies, down to the molecular level. I can wax lyrical for hours if anybody wants to come and hear about those things. But one of the things that is important is that the more we discover, the less we actually know. Every time we uncover something, there's a whole plethora of other answers and questions that we have to ask. Many famous scientific Christians became Christ's disciples not because of eloquent sermons or great evangelists or even God TV, but because of the scientific discipline that they followed. Francis Collins is one of the world's foremost geneticists. He studies DNA and what DNA does. And when he looked at DNA, what it did, how it was structured, he thought, this isn't by accident. Something created this to do this. It's far too complicated for chemicals in a puddle to get a lightning bolt and turn into a creature. It was enough for him to want to know more about Jesus Christ. Now, I want to use a simple illustration at a surface level just to show you what I mean about how wonderfully made you are. Can you all raise your right hand as high as you can put it? Is everyone? Right. Thank you. You can put your hands down now. I'll unpack what just happened. But before I do that, I'd just like to thank you all for volunteering, and we'll let you know afterwards what you just volunteered for. Now, I asked you to lift up your arm. So when I spoke, I created waves in the air. They landed in your ear. They went through your ear, through a small set of bones, which set some nerves off. Your brain then went through different iterations to work out this is language, this is what he's saying. Okay, he wants me to raise my right arm. So at that point, when you raised your right arm as high as you can, you may notice you did that. So your body has to control its posture. So there are thousands of nerve symbols going off at that point. When you raised your arm, how many people hit the person in front of them or next to them? Nobody? So you subconsciously made sure that you didn't just go bang, oops, sorry. When you kept it up there, your body increased your blood pressure so blood would go up your arm. If you hold your arm up for any length of time, you realize how it turns white, gets numb, tingly. Then when I asked you to bring it down, you brought it down. Now, some of you, when I asked you to raise your arm, were thinking, what's he going to ask me to do next? Some of you were suspicious. Some of you thought, I don't want to be made an idiot. 
Some of you just did it blindly. All those things, none of you thought about, did you? You just said, he said, lift my arm up, I'm going to lift my arm up. All those things went on in your mind, through the nerves, through the muscles, for you to be able just to do that simple thing. And if I was to take you through the molecular level of one and on there, we'd be here for days and days and days. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Sometimes we just don't realize it. We take for granted, don't we, our bodies. When something goes wrong with our bodies, then we think, oh, when we get older, when arthritis takes in, we can't go and run a marathon. If you're like me, I love cake. I adore cake. But I have type 2 diabetes. So cake and me are mutually exclusive. Well, most of the time anyway. Our bodies are not a random set of accidents or even evolution. I can take you through the maths about rates of evolution and what we should look like, but what we're not. God created us for a purpose. I would love the Lord to come back right now, and I know there'd be a number of people in here who would be just the same as me. Get rid of all our aches and pains and get that 30-year-old body back. I'm really looking forward to that. As an aside, it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God himself formed the man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, this is the squeamish bit. So anybody that's squeamish, put your fingers in your ears now. If you take a human body and you place it into a drying oven and you dry off all the water, then you take that body out and you grind it up into dust. The constitution of that dust is more or less the same as good quality topsoil. So there is a truth in that. It's a great one to do to kids. You get a big bucket of water up on the stage, and you get all the chemicals and you pour it in and you get them to stir it and say, well, why hadn't you made a body? God did. He used the same stuff. But we return to the big question, why? Why would God create us? What is our purpose here? And why do we make such a mess of everything? The Apostle Peter tells us a little bit about who we are. 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 to 12, you know it well. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Then he goes on to tell us, beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The world has two types of people. 
people who are in open rebellion against God and those who follow him and who are obedient. In practice, what Peter says, how does that work out in my daily life? What do I have to do? The Bible, and in particular the New Testament, lays out for us what kind of behavior as Christians we should exhibit. Behavior that culminates in the two great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind, and to love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus came down as God to be with us, to walk among us, to suffer and to die on the cross so that our sins may be forgiven and to bring us eternal life. We all agree on that, or I hope we all should do. It's a central tenet of our faith. That all who believe on him will have eternal life. The Apostle Paul says to us, if it was just for the forgiveness of sins, just for this life, we are to be pitied more than all others. But we have eternal life, an eternal life in the kingdom of God. God's purpose for us is what then? What does this church mean to you as an individual, as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Is it something you just do on a Sunday? Maybe you stick in a home group or two. What would differentiate you from someone who is in open rebellion against God? When you step out of the doors of this church, what tells somebody that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? There is a challenge for us, one that the church in the West likes to duck and avoid. The Pharisees asked Jesus a question in Luke 17, chapters 20 to 21. Being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Paul often describes the church, the body of Christ, that is you, as body parts. Now, those of us who have long-term illnesses know when a bit doesn't work, the rest of the body tries to compensate, but it makes a bit of a mess of it. It's uncomfortable. And so it is within the church. We need to work together as the body of Christ. We are kingdom bringers. For me, one of the scariest passages in the Bible when I was a new Christian is John 14, verse 12. He says... Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works, or these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Can I really do more than Jesus Christ? Really? Can I be like the Apostle Peter or the Apostle Paul? Maybe I can't do everything they did. But each single one of us has an anointing from God, only something you can do. And it might be very small, or it might be very big. Personally, I'd love to have been like Billy Graham, but I'm not. 
There are things I can do that I can serve. And Paul lists these things out, and we strive to do them. It's important that we fulfill that. God is a God of love. Love for his creation. And he loves you, and he gives you a choice. Do you follow him, or do you ignore him? God is not a dictator. Why does he allow wars? Well, he doesn't. You do. Have a choice. God doesn't create wars. Man does. If he intervened in one thing, he would have to intervene in everything. We wouldn't like that, would we? We don't like somebody telling us what we have to do, what we should do. But God has that right. He created you. He created us. He owns us. I could go into great depths about the mechanics of crucifixion as a biologist. It looks simple being stuck on that cross, but it is the most excruciating, painful, long-lived form of torture and death that has been devised. Jesus went through that for you. You might be saved. You might have eternal life with him. So why wouldn't we, when we read the Apostles' Creed, when we read the creator of heaven and earth, be so excited about it, be passionate about it, thinking, God loves me. Jesus reminds us that without him we can do nothing. And the song we sang earlier on, In Christ Alone, one of the lines finishes, one of the verses says, here in the power of Christ I stand. And that is how we succeed, by standing with Jesus. Tom Wright talks about Jesus bringing in the kingdom of God. He came to earth, he saved us, but he brought in the kingdom of God. The miracle showed what the kingdom is really going to be like when there will be no sickness, there will be no death. And he went after three years. Who continues that? You do. This church does. Every church in the country does. We are to spread the good news of the gospel. That doesn't always mean that we sit on a street corner with a Bible in hand, preaching some people it does. For others, it's serving in their church. It's serving their community. It's running a home group. It's cleaning this church. All of those things bring it together. Tom Wright's book, Simply, Chris, Simply Jesus, is really worth a good read. He explains it very, very carefully. Jesus also reminds us in John 15, we did not choose him, he chose us. And it says, he appointed us means we've got a job to do. It's not a random thought, random action that you sit in this church this morning listening to me drone on. God wants you to work in his kingdom. He wants us to show the rest of the world there is another way apart from darkness. The creed was written to help us remember who we are, where we have come from, who is our creator, and what is the absolute truth. We follow and learn from Jesus Christ. We are to be like him. It is a hard and narrow path. And the world hates us. I used to work for Barnabas Fund. And I have seen things that make martyrdom and sacrifice for Christ very much realer than they would be if I'd never worked there. I've met people who've had to flee from burning churches 
who carry the wounds and the scars of attacks. There is not a hint in those people of ever turning away from Jesus Christ. We have the power of Christ in which we stand. We have the power of the Holy Spirit within each single one of us. And we have our dummy's guide to being a Christian, the Bible. What attracts people to Jesus Christ? Other people do. You do. The way you live your life, how you speak, how we are with one another as a church speaks of the love of Jesus Christ. We know where we come from, don't we? We know this morning when we woke up to that glorious sunshine, that sunshine is falling on the unrighteous just as it falls on us. And before we get big-headed and arrogant, because we have been chosen and we are his, we're somehow better than everybody else. Remember that without him we can do nothing. We try and stand on our own, we will fail. Our enemy will pick us off. As much as we like to think, I can stand against the devil, on your own you can't. He's far too powerful for you to stand against him. It's only in the power of Christ that you stand We need each other. We need to work together so that we can do more than what Jesus did when he walked here. If it wasn't for the 12 disciples, we wouldn't be sitting here, would we? If they hadn't have gone out and shared and successive Christians over the generation had done that, we wouldn't be here. So what should you be like as a Christian as I close? I suggest you read Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. We are to be poor in spirit. We are to be those who mourn over the world in its current darkness. We are to be meek. We are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We are to be merciful. We are to be pure in heart. And we are to be peacemakers. Those are the people that will inherit the kingdom of God. That is how we are supposed to be. Will we get that right? No. Of course we won't. None of us do. There has only ever been one perfect person, and that is the person of Jesus Christ our Lord. When we read the Apostles' Creed, those first two lines, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I hope that today I've been able to just lead you through a slightly deeper understanding of just who God is. And just who you are, what God thinks of you, the price he paid for you. He's given you a deposit, the Holy Spirit, a down payment on the kingdom to come. But what we do brings the kingdom into this world. We look at the news and we're dismayed at the darkness, youngsters stabbing each other, rumors of wars. None of this should surprise us. He writes and tells us this is what's going to happen until he returns. Now we can hang our heads and think, well, there's nothing I can do. I'm tiny. I'm insignificant. But everything you do counts in the kingdom. Everything this church does counts in the kingdom. Sometimes we want to know from God, well, what's the future hold? It's not our business to know what the future holds. Our job is to do what we do every day. We take the next step on that narrow path. God is the one who will guide us and lead us. Have we the courage to take that step? 
God is the creator of heaven and earth. And you are the pinnacle of that creation. And every time you see the Apostles' Creed, remember that. Remember the one who created the heavens and the earth. Remember the things you've seen that have stunned you. We can think of great scientists like Stephen Hawking. Wonderful man. Amazing things he discovered. But who allowed him to discover those things, even though he wasn't a believer? God. God created him. God created the brain he had. All of the circumstances that surrounded him. He wasn't an accident. It's just a shame that he never realized who his creator really was. But we do know. Every single one of us know who our creator is. And we should serve him. And we should have a fire burning in our bellies every time we sing a worship song here. Every time we share our faith. Every time we pick up our Bible. We study a passage of scripture. That passion, the fire of the spirit should burn within us. Amen.